Hello everyone and welcome to Human Centered Security. Today I have with me Kate Brett Goldman from Cybermaniacs. Kate, I am super stoked to talk to you today and welcome to the show. To start us off, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So um, I'm Kate, I'm the CEO and I'm the founder of Cybermaniacs and we create cybersecure humans. And I guess you could say we do this through some unique approaches. So we are the puppet people, uh, but we also have a platform and a data-driven approach. And we're just looking at this whole human change situation totally differently. So um, it's mostly about using fun and humor and getting people to want to change, um, you know, get them on the bus and then take them with us on this journey. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things that you had mentioned in our initial conversation was the idea that the term cybersecurity awareness shouldn't be used. I was wondering if you could unpack that a little bit for us. Oh, Heidi, you're going to throw down. Like, it's <laughs> like the first question out of the gate. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I think it's really, uh, it's a tough thing because I think that this happens in a lot of industries where you see either a maturity or a growth or a transformation in the thing that you're doing, but that there's still a majority of people within the market who want to call it that because that's what they have a budget line attached to. Does that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. Yeah, so I think it's like we've got kind of like a 1.0 situation where people are like, look, in the last 10 years-ish, getting normal people, employees to be aware that cybercrime was a thing, that you could get hacked, um, that these uh, risks were growing, that was the main objective. And, and some of it was knowledge transfer. So we, I think that in the beginning, we felt like, oh my God, if we could just get this information into the heads of normal people, they're obviously gonna totally get on board with this and change all of their habits and keep themselves super secure. And that's not necessarily what's happened. So I think that there is some things that need to be done in terms of awareness. Like I've seen some statistics and, and again, I have a hard time with the statistics because many times they're made up by the marketing team, bless them. Like I know they're trying to do the research, but when you want to get to the real number, sometimes it's hard, but there is some research that shows that the majority of people, once you kind of get past phishing and you're like, okay, well talk to me about ransomware, talk to me how it affects companies. There is no awareness. There's no knowledge. So I don't think saying making people aware of what's going on, in terms of security, cybersecurity, et cetera, is bad. But I think that the target has changed. And so what is 2.0? What do we really want? Um, and I, I see the whole industry shifting towards this, which is we want people to change their habits and their behaviors. And so, you know, that starts with winning over their hearts and minds. We need people to mindset shift, right? And that's sort of saying from, you know, going from, you know, can you define malware? <laughs> My favorite is, can you define malware from a multiple choice answer set, right? And I'm like, well, that's like third grade. <laughs> it's not actually keeping your company secure in any way, shape or form. To conceptually, do you understand malware and do you know what to do? Can you, um, you know, do you have the right competency to decide what to do in any changing situation? Because malware could present itself in lots of different ways on your devices. So it's, getting people past this into skills, behaviors, habits, and eventually at the company level, we're now talking about culture. So I don't think we should call it awareness. What we call it next, what this 2.0 is, I don't know. I got some ideas, but it's probably sounds very like, you know, human changey. And um, 
you know, you know, turning humans into adaptive cyber defense agents doesn't really roll off the tongue. So I don't know what to call it, but awareness isn't enough. We have to get people to care and we have to get them to feel responsible and we have to get them to do the right thing in any situation. So it's hard to, to rename a whole industry. This is great. There was a lot to unpack there. I really like the idea of uh, cybersecurity awareness 2.0, and I loved that you said adaptive cyber defense agents. That's really interesting. One of the one of the common threads that come up in the podcast is that awareness doesn't necessarily equate to action. And to build upon that, the other thing that I think you were saying was that things are just really complex and complicated and it's increasingly difficult to determine is this thing that it's happening that I'm seeing that I'm experiencing a bug you know just something strange some strange anomaly that's happening but benign or is this indicative of a larger problem that I need to do something about and if I do need to do something, what what are those actions? What what things? What actions do I need to take? You know, and that's I think that there is there is quite a bit there, absolutely. And and when we put ourselves in the shoes, you know, as you know from your design background and and design thinking, when you put yourself in the um, employees' shoes or like I call the normal people, right? Not technologists, and and you sit there and say, well, why do they either? abandon the process of making themselves secure. So the same way you would kind of look at a website and say, why are they abandoning the shopping cart, right? At different parts of the journey, you know, I look at it and I say, well, why did they not install the password manager? Or what's the cognitive resistance? Or why are people afraid to take the next step? What do they not understand? What do they not feel secure about? Where do they not feel safe in terms of taking the steps they need to take to be secure, whether that is not clicking on a link, whether that is forwarding that to you know the uh, infosec department. So there's the thing is is that this is a Gordian knot. There's so much to kind of uncover here, and I think what you said earlier is really um, important because it is more than just complicated. You're right, it's complex, right? So when we think of systems thinking, um, and I'm going to murder this because I can never say it correctly. The Kindfin framework. Um, like the systems thinking and thinking about complex, you know, there's tons of reactions and there's tons of connections that are not logical, right? There's, there's, there's a lot of things that happen in the human brain, especially based on emotion that can't necessarily be put down into rationality. And especially in the cyber world, we want it to be rational, but they're not, humans are not rational. You can't expect them to be. Um, and so when we're faced with these difficult choices or these different situations, I mean, look, I can barely choose yogurt. I'm so tired at the end of the day and I go grocery shopping. I'm like, where's my yogurt? I can't, I don't want to make a decision about this. And I have sympathy for a lot of the normal people that are dealing with this because you're dealing with, look, rapid technology change over the last 20 years, okay? So that's level one. Just think about the iPhone was released in what, 2007? You know, so so in terms of hum, human brain adaptation, we're running, you know, a the hardware of our brains was is practically Neanderthal, right? I'm gonna mess that up, I apologize scientists, tell me I'm wrong. Um, and we're running software that doesn't adapt very quickly. And so we're asking people to go through these huge levels of understanding, 
um, behavior change, habit change, et cetera. And, and I think it's almost impossible to do without a lot of support and a lot of tools um, to make us better at it because it's just so much. So we have the iPhone, the way we do apps, the way we look at data, uh, the internet. In the last two years with COVID, everything's moved online, right? So streaming, entertainment services, gaming, all this stuff. Now we have connected homes and IoT and you know, you can connect your toaster or your vacuum cleaner or your doorbell. And it's just this whole landscape is proliferated. So while we can't keep up with it cognitively, we can't even sometimes figure out if there's a threat there, the hackers are also at the other side of that equation, exploiting that for gain. So that's the problem is the, the poor normal people, and poor just because I have sympathy for them, uh, are faced with difficult choices, both from the hackers, both from legacy and what companies have provided them in terms of tools in, to protect themselves at work and home. And then on the other side, there is something we could kind of unpick. I don't know how far you want to go down this rabbit hole, but there's something we can unpick in terms of uh, trust and design and maybe some of the consumer technology companies, um, you know, not necessarily yeah. having security on the back end, but designing it to make it look shiny so that people assume there's privacy or they assume there's security when actually it's just smoke and mirrors. Yeah, that's a great point. And without going too far down that rabbit hole, I think consumers do make a lot of quick decisions based on something that looks well-designed, looks aesthetically pleasing, has a brand name associated with it. So therefore, they think it's trustworthy or they're thinking, oh, my information is must be kept private. The same thing goes for like IoT devices, I spoke with Matt Wickhouse a few episodes ago, and he was talking about some of the issues with the lack of transparency on the supply chain for these for these types of devices. So, like you know, your smart TV or your um, your your doorbell, right? And consumers just assume that because there's a brand name associated with it, that it's trustworthy or that it's secure. But what they don't know are all of these different pieces that go into the IoT device that are supplied by somebody else. And those things may not may make the device less secure. So to move us on to our next topic, I really wanted to dive into metrics. And I was metrics are I'm thinking about like UX metrics. Those are difficult enough to define. I, If you add security on top of it, I think it gets even more messy. And as you were talking about this security awareness 2.0, it occurred to me that it, it can get even more hairy and messy and difficult to define and measure. So I'm hoping that we can spend a little bit of time talking about that. Oh yeah. So, okay. So I think that there is, there's, there's a couple different kind of, let me draw a little map and we'll see how far we get down this, this, this path. So, you know, I think that when we looked at these kind of things, um, we look at the metrics, we look at how do you actually look at your organization? There's, there's a couple different angles to it, but traditionally in cyber awareness, it 
has been more a tick the box exercise. And that's because of budget expediency. That's because of the limitations of learning management systems and how more traditional static um, one size fits all quote unquote e-learning has been delivered in the past. So the good news is we're moving away from that. Um, certainly Cybermaniacs is jumping the shark. We're, we're trying to go beyond Thunderdome on it because I said I, we don't even want to be tied to an LMS um, because we don't think it delivers the right learning as an experience that people need to do. So that being said, once you kind of move away from those knowledge-based short-term learning objectives, which everybody knows you forget, right? So, you know, Heidi, if I'm measuring, you know, like, oh, Heidi could define malware. Uh, in January, but in you know February we tested her again and she can't because that's the forgetting curve. I don't know what that actually shows you about your cybersecurity posture in terms of your human factors, right? So when we pulled this apart, I said, okay, we, we you know it, it, this is three years in the making. So there's a ton of research that kind of went into our approach, our thinking on metrics, our thinking of how to provide better insight to companies and insight isn't necessarily data. It can be, it should definitely be. You gotta show me the proof is in the pudding. You gotta show me the data. But there's so many different um, elements, colors and threads you can pull through to either understand a culture, understand how your people think, understand what they know, understand what they feel like they're able to do, right? So there's sentiment and perception and, and all these different things you can kind of pull apart and each company is very unique in what that makeup is because you know you have the culture that you've inherited from the people at your company from both the explicit culture that's written down and the implicit culture of the way we do things here but then it changes over time based on who your people are who your leadership are so it's never like one score or like a report that you can spit out of a formula um, because it is much more unique and nuanced and if you really want to dig into the weeds to change things um, i like to think of it like everybody's used to playing like a kid's keyboard you know like the little toy pianos but if you start to build up a measurement program and you start to think of all the different things you can measure and the ways you can measure them then you get into one of those like church organs you know what i'm talking about with like the 17 knobs on the top and the three keyboards up and down and the pipes coming out of the ceiling like you can get that level of sophistication to it but it's something you have to build over time so you have to look at the big data you have to look at the little data you have to look at the people stuff and I guess to your point, one of the things you said that I thought was interesting there was that, look, you know, because there are so many systems, because there's so many different people, because technology changes so fast, right? Because even application interfaces like you work on change so fast. If you're focusing on the task level habit or behavior, don't click here, don't do this, do that in this application, don't do that. We're, I think, as an industry, we've leaned too hard into that because that to me is the logical rational. So people are like, oh, we can map that. Let's just map it out. Let's just define all of the different user behaviors across all the different applications. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. That's definitely part of it. But if that's the only part of the measurement of habits and behaviors you're focused on, then you're losing the people centric one. Right, you're losing the one where you say, why are they doing that? What's going on in their brain? How do we do, you know, the, you know, thinking about things in terms of the jobs to be done strategy or being um, you know, empathetic to the user, right? And in terms of what they're trying to do, uh, you know, what they're trying to accomplish in their job um, and maybe what even emotional context they're trying to do it in. Because as you well know, checking email, um, you know, in a rush versus checking email when you're relaxed. 
the way that you click, the things that you look at are totally different. So that's what we're trying to measure and unpick is, is that whole holistic look at your people, what they know, think, feel, how they make decisions in different contexts, and then how do we create more dynamic and personalized training to nudge them into better behavior rather than this like old fashioned static one size fits all kind of thing. Yeah, I have a few follow-up questions. One of the things that popped into my mind was, and I can't remember if I read this somewhere, or if this was something that's been popping up on LinkedIn that I saw, but I thought about the aviation industry and I thought about a story, an example where they were asking pilots to not only obviously report, you know, accidents, things that had happened, but also report near misses because they can deconstruct the accident, but it's also really valuable to deconstruct and try to figure out the root cause of something that happens. And, you know, thank goodness it, it didn't result in an accident, but it was a near miss and they can kind of go backwards and, and figure out what had happened. And they incentivized the pilots to report this as well. Well, yeah, and that's where you're getting into two things, which is you know the, the, the safety change that happened, let's say over a 20 year period in the airline industry, starting in the late 1970s, um, absolutely fascinating. So the thing that I, I find interesting in your absolutely right is not just what they looked at, but they also focused very hard internationally at changing the behavior in the cockpit. And so they took apart all these different human factors that went into some of these accidents and near misses. And so it wasn't just the process or the protocol or the way that, you know, numbers were read. It was changing the default, you know, language to English. And they chose English not just because it was widely spoken, but also because it didn't have as much power dynamics as some of the other languages did. Um, they, you know, they, they, you know, as you said, they, they changed the, the reporting structure in terms of how, you know, while the pilot is the, you know, the captain of the ship in a way to speak and, and is, is the leader, you know, the, the way that they treat the under officers has changed in the last 20 years. So how they take advice or how they take warnings and then how they're rewarded, incentivized for that, that whole behavior pattern changed. And it's very, very interesting um, to look at the aviation industry and the data that they kick out. So, so yeah, I think that it's, it's interesting to see what we look at. I think it's also then interesting to peel back from a cybersecurity perspective, um, some of the really deeper values and cultural elements that cause that, right? So in the airline industry, there were some nationalistic cultures that were more hierarchical. That meant that, um, people who had seen warning signals or had seen a pattern that there could be an issue on the aircraft were not listened to or did not feel like they could speak up because of hierarchy. And so that was part of the behavior shift in the cabin was to flatten that power structure somewhat. I think in cybersecurity, you've got similar things where, you know, if there is a breach, if we go in with forensics, when something has happened, we'll go in and we'll unpick all the different things that happened um, in terms of the technology and what the hackers were able to access and how they were able to access it and all that stuff. So they'll do that total, total, you know, um, they'll go deep into the forensics on that. 
But then the human factors of why that happened and the remediation of that from a cultural front, I think that is where we're starting to see a lot more effort now. And we're starting to see some really cool research and we're starting to see some cool companies that can deal with those kind of um, situations come in and help with the assessment on the human side. Because I do think, Heidi, a lot of times it's been like, oh, uh, this happened, this happened, this happened, the hackers got us, it was a human's fault, too bad, okay, more phishing training. <laughs> it's not really unpicking the, the deeper cause of why, but it's a start. We'll get there. Yeah, those are great points. And to take us back to metrics, I wanted to talk a little bit about quantitative versus qualitative metrics and what that means for cybersecurity. So quantitative is numbers, you know, how much, how many, qualitative meaning looking at the why, why certain things are happening. I think it's, it's, it's hard. And you know, this when you come from a technical background or where you have these technical tools available, right? So I mean, when you measure stuff on a website front end, um, to, to take the data and to be so excited that we finally have some data, you're like, yes, we can measure what they clicked on. We can measure where they went. This is so exciting. But I think, um, if you focus only on those aspects of measurement, you're losing the forest for the trees. And I, I look at it, you know, from, I think it's really important to take a holistic picture. So we, we have a measurement framework where we look at knowledge, awareness, uh, we benchmark some behaviors, we look at sentiment and perception, and then we look at organizational culture from like the four different perspectives. So we look at it from a organizational anthropology. We look at it from safety culture and actually interesting that you said airline because we model against airline and manufacturing safety culture. And then we also created our own measurement framework called digital tribes. So we want to know who the tribes are at your organization and how they do all their digital stuff. So that's sort of our comprehensive look, but even within that, which has some, you know, a lot of data behind it, but it's also a lot of survey data. And you know, that can be um, variable in terms of its, um, absolute truth, right? Because you don't want to just ask customers what they think, they need to show you. Um, I think that there is some art that's being lost. So it's, I, I don't know, I guess it's more just a question of me of like, well, what can the data show us? And then what do we need to listen to in terms of that, um, you know, emotional side to it? Where can we find that mix between art and science that, you know, like, like I love, um, have you read the book Alchemy? by Rory no. Sutherland. Oh, fantastic. So I'm obsessed with this book. And and he talks about, so he's, I think the chairperson of Ogilvy and he talks about, well, behavior change and customers and, and talking to people and brands, et cetera. But there's so much truth there in terms of blending, you know, not losing the magic of what happens and not forgetting that magic is magical just because you're, you have a lot of data, data to measure human stuff on, if that makes sense. That kind of sounds like what you're saying is it gets really difficult to measure or explain what humans do because sometimes humans don't really know why they do certain things. So you can't really ask them, why did you do that certain thing? Because they don't know the answer to that. I think that absolutely on one side, there's like the stuff that people do and you're like, why'd you do that? And they're like, nah. <laughs> I don't know. But I think on the other side is we have to leave room for that. We have to leave room for creativity and talking to people in unexpected conversations and brainstorming. And that's how you come up with interesting, 
you know, new ideas. And if you're in the sort of agile development world or you're into agile thinking, well, then it's sort of like when we talk about changing humans and awareness and looking at audiences and culture, then you can start to, you know, run some pilots and you can start to create your own behavioral nudges, right? Um, and you can use whatever responds, you know, whatever would respond best to that audience um, or, or the culture, the organizational culture you have, right? So pick a theme, pick a creative approach that maps to your organization. But it's sort of leaving room for that experimentation and leaving room for that, that thing that is other than hard data and rationality based on user clicking patterns on a phishing simulation tool. Does that make sense? Like we just have to leave a little bit of room for um, the mystery and the art and, and finding things that are unexpected because it happens. Yeah, what I really liked about what you said there is the idea that you're forming hypotheses and then testing, iterating. That's a very user-centered approach, a very human-centric approach to to doing things. Obviously, those hypotheses are based on research. Going back to metrics and how this applies to metrics is the idea, and this is something that I teach in my UX workshops, is how qualitative and quantitative metrics can be used together for this more complete picture and to inform this iterative process. So whether you start with quantitative or qualitative, they can, let's just say, for example, you start with quantitative metrics. So you notice that the user is dropping off at a certain point, if we're using a UX example. They're not doing something. They're not doing the the action that you would like them to do, like checking out or adding something to their cart. So then you so you have these numbers, but you don't you don't know why. You don't know why this is happening. So then you can start investigating qualitatively why this is happening. And then you can start to form some hypotheses on how to fix it based on your analysis of why this is happening. And then you can go on to measure that quali- quantitatively. So did the changes that you make actually make a difference? No, absolutely. And I think that's that that is one of the biggest organizational challenges facing cybersecurity right now is A, the expertise and skill in-house to do that. B, as you know, there is a time commitment to that. There's a resource commitment to that. So if you're saying, look, we're going to A, B test um, two different approaches um, to see if, if this behavioral nudge works or if this new interface gets more clicks or we can you know, change someone's preference or we can get them to add something to the cart at the last minute. It's all the same thinking, right? But I think consumer brands have that commitment already built in. They're like, okay, we're committed to A-B testing. We're committed to getting the data. We're committed to move forward on the decision. But to pull that, and I want to pull all this stuff into learning and development and how we look at changing behavior in terms of security posture and mindset and the skills that employees have to use computers safely. (laughs) Pretty basic. But that is... um, it's a whole skill set and it's a requirement of time and it's a dedication to the process that um, it feels like a lot of time for right now a question mark on the actual efficacy of it because most of cybersecurity is on fire. And I totally empathize with that and I understand that there's limited time, there's limited budget and things are happening that need to be addressed immediately that are, you know, immediate threats. The one, and we could go on a whole tangent and and go on to another podcast topic, but one thing that I want to 
say to both security professionals and UX professionals who are listening to this is talk to each other. If you are working at an organization that has a security team, has an IT team, talk to them about security. I'm not saying your full-time job needs to be implementing these internal security solutions at your company, but at the end of the day, these are design challenges. These are things that, whether you call yourself a designer or not, are affecting someone's user experience. And I think just starting the conversations with internally at your team, if this is something that you care about, is a small but very significant step that both security professionals and UX practitioners can take. And I think I think it's really important. So I that's just one thing that I wanted to say about that. I think there'd be nothing better than the, you know, if you're working for a tech company and you have a design team or if you have a customer driven team or if you've got, you know, any of these um, design focused functions at your organization, if you as an InfoSec person just go out to lunch with these people, you will learn a ton and that will improve, you know, the way that you think about building security products or how you roll out new tools to um, the users or how you educate your, your employees on all these different threats. So I think, you know, these two teams should be loving each other and, you know, having lunch, get some coffee, bring them donuts, whatever works. Um, even if it is just on, on, on brainstorming and mind sharing, I think that would go a huge, huge, huge amount of ways. Absolutely. One of the things that you had said before, and I think these are your exact words, is that you really need to paint a picture with numbers that a single score is problematic and could very well be misleading. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about what you meant by that. Well, uh, if that's actually my quote, can you write that down for me? Because <laughs> I was like, wow, that actually sounds halfway smart. I'm, I'm very impressed by thinking. Um, I, I think it's true. So one of the things that we've been um, talking about quite a bit at Cybermaniacs because there is an awakening and there is a desire in the cyber industry to learn more about culture. How does it work? How do we use it? How, how do we move? So there's all these, you know, vendor buzzwords. It's like buzzword bingos coming out again and it's like AI driven. Um, and I feel like cybersecurity culture might be on there soon because so many people, um, it's like, you know, Inigo Mentoya and the Princess Bride, you know, you keep on using this word. They do not think it means what you think it means. And, <laughs> and what we get to is like, look, culture is not a score. Um, you know, you can't get an eight out of 10 on security culture. And while I think there, you know, it's understandable that people are like, I just want you to make it simple. Please just make this easy for us to take something to the board of directors to help us move this program forward. Um, you know, these human dynamics and these risk factors and these perceptions and sentiments and knowledge levels, it goes back to the beginning of this conversation. All this stuff is really complex. So if you want to really understand it, you have to think about it from a different perspective. And I love maps. So I talk about it in terms of you need to create a map of your culture. And from there, we can talk about a strategy of learning, a strategy of change, a strategy of mindset shift. And then you can attach success metrics to those threads, if that makes sense. Because 
you know, you're going to have internal and external factors on those, the culture and the culture is, I mean, this is the thing I want people to understand the most. You have a culture, right? You have an organizational culture. So when we talk about cybersecurity culture, it's, it's something other. And, and I don't want to separate the two. You have an organizational culture. You can understand what it is. You can understand who your people are. And when I say understand, I mean really understand. Get some data, do some audiencing and segmenting the same way, Heidi, that I'm sure you guys do. You help companies through, which is like, okay, well, let's talk about your customer segments. Who are your repeat buyers? Who are your repeat clickers, et cetera? Like you, you can leverage all of these different um, frameworks that exist, right? In design thinking, in other disciplines and bring them into cyber to make it better. But what we're trying to help people understand is like, look, here is your map. Here's the landscape of your people. And when you say map or landscape, what exactly does that mean? Well, I think that there's lots of different cultural factors you could look at. So, I mean, even if you go and you Google organizational culture, you're going to come up with like seven to 10 different well-established models of measuring and looking at culture. So basically there's, you know, what are the systems and the signs? What are the stories? How, what are the power dynamics? What are the values? And there's lots of different ways you can pick it apart. And I think you, we, you know, we've applied five or six different sort of measurement models to this because, you know, every time we went out and measured this, and I have been using these models in my career for over 15 to 20 years. So I used them for agile transformation. I've used them for project um, delivery. I've used them for um, understanding workforce planning, right? So, so having used these cultural models before, I know that that's the thing about it. You can use them in so many different ways, but just one isn't going to give you a picture, right? It might give you an outline, but if you want those, those richer dynamics and if you want back to the piano metaphor, if you want to be able to actually play that piano um, and hit the right notes for the right people at the right time to accelerate their change, right? So, um, you know, if you're thinking about like a website, right? How do you put the right offer in front of the right customer at the right time so that they click the button and complete the shopping transition tr transaction, right? Um, you have to have different levels of understanding of your customers, of the situations you're putting in front of them, and then what are their behaviors and what are the outcomes of those behaviors afterwards? And so it's, that's the map. It's, it's different levels of understanding across your entire cultural landscape, your habits landscape, your knowledge landscape, and then what is your company actually trying to do and what is it trying to protect? So again, it's, that's why I guess I use the, the metaphor of a painting because it is, it's a lots of different colors to mix in and I think it becomes complex very quickly. I love the painting metaphor. That's great. In our last few minutes, what is your advice to folks who want to start measuring security metrics, who understand that they need to paint a picture, as you said, of their security culture? What would, what would be their next step? What would you suggest that they do as their first step? So I think it depends. It's a great question because I do think it depends on where you are on your overall cybersecurity maturity journey, right? And I do think that if you are not doing the basics in terms of the technology, um, then that right now is the, the absolute bare minimum best line of defense, right? So if you're not putting the right firewalls, tools, antivirus in place, you know, if you're not doing, and, and there are 
far more experts than me in this area, so I'm not going to give the full list of it because all of this stuff is easily findable. Um, you know, that that has to be step one. If you're in your maturity journey and you're starting to look at people and training and culture and behavior and you you want to um, you want to improve on that part of the journey, then then I think the 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 first thing that I ask people to do is to understand who your people really are, because so many of us um, assume that we know who is at our company or what those workers know, think or feel about cybersecurity. There is. Um, I think a misperception in cyber, which is, you know, inherent in, I think the attitudes of a lot of help desks and stuff where we're like, oh, those rubes, normal people who can't, you know, who can't, you know, like understand how packet loss works. I'm like, okay, like, look, my mom doesn't understand packet loss. Like my mom doesn't understand these things. Let's play at that level. And I think when we look at people with respect and we look at them with empathy and when we say, who are my people? I really want to understand this. Then from there, you can design culture change. You can design learning programs. You can find creative approaches that are going to hit that emotional key and really bring positivity and culture change and behavior into the organization. Because we know the hackers and hoodies isn't working. We know the FUD is, is done where everyone's exhausted. So I think it is just a question of like either figure out internally if you've got people that can help you with this or come to companies like the Cyber Maniacs, shameless plug, right? To say, help me understand who my people are because then whatever you design afterwards is gonna be so much more impactful. Yeah, I love that. I love the that human-centered lens. So if folks wanna get in touch with you, what is the best way for them to do that? We are at thecybermaniacs.com, or you can find us on any of your friendly social media platforms at the Cybermaniacs. Um, and you can find me on LinkedIn as well, Kate Brett Goldman. Great. Kate, thank you so much for being on the show. It was really a pleasure to talk to you. Okay, Heidi, come be on my podcast next, okay? <laughs> you got it. All right, sounds good.